in our spirit into your presence. We come with thanksgiving and praise and honor to you. What a great and mighty God you are, an awesome God who continues to amaze us. We honor you tonight. Come on, church, let's pray. Come on, lift our voices. Let's lift our voices and give honor to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, King of Kings. Lord, you're so good to us. So good to us. We thank you, Lord, and honor you, Lord, tonight. Wonderful Jesus. Father, we pray your anointing to flow powerfully through Shane tonight. Great liberty, great release, great freedom. We thank you for your servant for bringing him here. Thank you, Lord, for the wealth of the word and the depths of the word he carries. Let him feel and sense the flow of your spirit tonight, leading, directing, as he opens up the word of God to us. Lord, we just open our hearts to receive, to be fed, to come alive, and to change. We give you all the honor and all the glory. Let's give a lot of clap, shall we? Amen. Let's give a great big welcome to Shane as he comes tonight. Fantastic. Awesome. Great to have awesome. you here. It's awesome to be here. You guys are awesome. Very good. You, you could be seated. We're going to take a journey tonight um, in Scripture. I know exactly where I feel like the Spirit of the Lord wants us to journey tonight. And um, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get part of the way there in the first session. We'll get all the way there in the next session. And... Um, I get excited as a communicator when I have a clear direction. I know exactly where I want to move a group of people. And we started this last night. And um, this will culminate Sunday night. Sunday night will be the most important message I, I would preach probably in the world now. And so um, I, it's, it's something else. We, we're we're going to talk about the whole week. We're talking about how to establish the kingdom of God in your life. And so last night we talked about how the kingdom of God is, is, is not, has nothing to do with like heaven and hell. It has more to do with what a group of people are deciding to do to bring heaven to earth. And so if we're going to be kingdom people, uh, a couple things are true. One, we have to be flexible. We have to be humble enough to say, wait a minute, uh, we're just Joe and Jane. Like, we, we have to be flexible. We, we, we have to, to move when God moves. Um, if, if you think about the history of God... In, in the history of, of, of things, um, hi, Christian history is molded by people courageous enough to do something different. Christian history is molded by people courageous enough to do something different. When Moses was, think about it, when Moses was talking to the burning bush, and he asked the burning bush, you're God, what's your name? What did the burning bush tell him? My name is Jehovah. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, hang on. To Moses, who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? El Shaddai. El Sh Jehovah did not reveal himself to, to Abraham. A God named El Shaddai did. So this burning bush says, my name is Jehovah. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was El Shaddai. And the burning bush says, I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. But by my name, Jehovah, they didn't know me. They didn't know me. Now, do you understand that if Moses is a Pentecostal theologian, we don't even get the book of Exodus? Do you understand that if he takes the stance 
with the burning bush like we would have. No, no, God is one. God is El Shaddai. God can't have more than one name and still be one. That's impossible. But because he was able to be flexible and sort of move with what God told him, um, we, we ended up getting greater revelation of who God is. Because did, God, did God's name stop with Jehovah? No, he said, my, I'm Jehovah Rapha, I'm Jehovah Sidkenu, I'm Jehovah Mikadesh, I'm Jehovah Rohi, I'm Jehovah Nisi, I'm Jehovah Shema, I'm Jehovah Shalom, I'm Jehovah Rapha, I'm Jehovah Jireh. All of these names of God begin to be revealed. And do you understand that every time he revealed his name, he was just revealing another part of his character. But if you had some, some staunch theologian there going, no, no, we have figured it all out about God, nothing else can be done, then we miss something. The name of God continually revealed himself until Jesus came along. And then one writer said it this way, that God saw fit to give him the name that was above every other name. Whether that name be written in heaven or written in earth or under the earth, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That, that the nature of journeying with God requires us to be flexible and humble. Listen to me. I have something on my heart for this church tonight. I want you to listen to me very carefully. If this church is going to be a kingdom church, then you have to move with what God's doing. There are churches in this world that were kingdom churches that are no longer kingdom churches. And it's not because they're bad people. It's just they quit growing. They quit moving. It's just because they, they quit moving with what God was doing. L listen, what worked yesterday is not going to work today, and what works today for sure will not work tomorrow. In any corporation, any business, anything you're doing, you have to challenge the process constantly in order to change what's going on. Change, transition, things like that is good. And listen, you guys all have your own walk with God. You all have your own walk with God. And, and so you guys journey with God, and if God tells you something different, you go with what God tells you. But I'm telling you this. In the next 15 years, the happening relevant churches will be churches that are defined by two things. One is the supernatural move of God. Two is social justice. Those two things will define the next relevant church. Relevancy has been the buzzword in the church. What do we do to be relevant? And there's churches all over the world trying to be more and more relevant. So what do they do? They build prettier buildings. What do they do? They make rules about the age of people on stages. What, what do they do? They start changing how they dress. As if the shirt you wear makes you relevant or not. It doesn't make you relevant at all. That has nothing to do with relevance. What it is is good-hearted people seeking to be more relevant. And I'm telling you, I'm, I, I know this as sure as I'm standing here. The churches that the next generation are going to flock to are not churches with the most sophisticated programs. They're the churches that have the supernatural power of God and a focus on making other people's lives better. The down and outer, the people who have less, those churches will be the most relevant churches in the next 15 years. Now, you can take that as a prophetic word, you can take that as wisdom from a teacher, or you can take that as a thought from a redneck from South Carolina. However you want to take it, you take it. But I'm telling you, it's the truth. And for us, for us to be kingdom people, we have to be determined to bring heaven to every situation and not rest on our laurels that we're going to heaven one day. We have, to be, we have to be determined to bring heaven to every situation and not rest on the fact that we can come here on Sunday morning and have great praise and worship. 
Is it good to have great praise and worship? Sure. Is it good to stand up and pray in the Spirit and worship God? Absolutely. Is that the end of anything? No. It should be the beginning of everything. That the, the church found its origins at a place called Sinai. We're going to talk about that later. The church found its origins at a place called Sinai. At Sinai, God told them this. God said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. Now, these guys were already forgiven. They were already delivered from Egypt. They were already in covenant with Abraham. They were already all this stuff. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to come regularly and meet in my presence so that you can take what you get out of my presence and make everybody else's life better. It wasn't an end-all, it end be-all. It, it was, I want you to be a group of people who are determined to show the whole world what God would look like. The whole world needs to see what Jesus would look like. And this is going to ultimately bring us to a, a generous spirit, which I'll talk about later. But, but to be kingdom people, we have to constantly ask ourselves the right questions. And so there's some scriptures tonight I want to I look at with you that, that bring up some questions about what sort of kingdom person am I? What sort of kingdom person am I? So I want to start tonight with um, the story of the alabaster box of perfume. The story of the alabaster box of perfume. Um, the first, there's actually two instances where Jesus, it looks, because it's in different gospels, it looks, it looks like there's only one instance, but when you read it close enough, you realize there's actually two. And there's a lot going on here historically, and there's a lot going on here that'll challenge our heart. Okay, the first one is in John chapter 12, verse 1. John chapter 12, verse 1, and then following. We'll read through, um, for the slide guy, uh, we'll read through to verse 8, okay? John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. So here's the, here's the first instance. It says this. It's going to come up on the screen. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover. So when did this take place? Six days before the Passover. So six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of them reclining at the table with him. Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep guard of it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. Okay, so that's the, we'll come back to the basics of the story because the same basic story happens four days later. The next instance is in Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 9. Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 9. The same thing, it's almost word for word, the same thing happens Two days later, I mean, four, four days later, two days before the Passover. Here's what it says. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priest and the teachers of the law were looking at some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was at Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. So in, so in, in the first instance, six days before, he was at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house. In this instance, he was at a man named Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. 
So here's that same pure nard perfume again. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. So in the first instance, where does she rub the perfume? On his feet. In the second instance, where do they rub the perfume? On his head. So the first instance is a rubbing of the feet with the pure nard. The second instance is a pouring on the head of the pure nard. Something is relevant here. So some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste the perfume? Now, now here Judas Iscariot is not the one um, protesting. It's other people standing there. And it says some of those. So there's a plurality of people going, she's pouring pure nard on his head. This can't be right. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Excuse me. <coughs> Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. So in both instances, whether he was rubbed with his feet or rubbed on his head with this pure nard, his defense of the person doing it was they're preparing me for my burial. They're preparing me for my burial. So in both instances, he defends the person that other people are attacking. He says, I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? First of all, you have to understand history. Remember last night we talked about Peshat, Ramez, Drosh, and Sud. There's some plain stuff here to Hebrew people that isn't so plain to us. In that culture, it was hospitable. If I had you as a guest in my house, it was customary for me to provide water in a bowl for you to wash your feet. Why? Because you just walked. Where? Through Israel, which is really dusty. Okay? So I would provide water in a bowl for you to wash your feet so that your feet feel better and my house stays cleaner. Okay? So, so you would, you would, it was customary to provide a bowl. The second thing it was customary to do is to provide droplets of perfume. Why? Because you just walked in the heat. You stink. So it will make the entire experience tonight more pleasurable if we have perfume. Now, what happens here, what, what happens here is something very different. In the Torah, it gives many commands about not being wasteful, not being wasteful. And remember last night we talked about a rabbi's yoke and what they bound and what they loosed. So, uh, so according to the command not to be wasteful, what the rabbis decided was this, that in hospitality circumstances, when you are celebrating someone coming to your house, it is okay to use perfume, but it is not okay to use pure nard. It is not okay to do that. They saw using pure nard as a waste. It, so if you were wasting resources, then you were violating a command of the Torah. So they said, they said, when you're celebrating someone coming to your house, you can give them perfume because that's customary, but you cannot use pure nard because that's wasteful. So the fact that she uses pure nard in both instances, the fact that that happens, that the fact that they protest is actually okay because it would have been according to rabbinical yokes that no, you couldn't use pure nard. So the fact that the writer's saying she's using pure nard, he's telling you why they're protesting. 
In one instance, Judas is protesting because he's actually greedy. In the other instance, there's a group of people protesting because she's actually breaking with tradition. She's actually doing something different. Here was what the rabbi said. You could not use pure nard to celebrate somebody, but you could only use pure nard if celebration was not the motive. You could use pure nard if celebration and rejoicing was not, was not the motive because that was seen excessive and luxurious. Jesus defends both instances by saying what? They're not rubbing the pure nard on my feet and on my head to celebrate me. They're rubbing pure nard on my feet and head as an act of mourning for my burial. So he defends them by saying, this is not an act of celebration and rejoicing. This is an act of mourning. And since it's an act of mourning, it fits in with the law. Okay, you with me? So he says, so, so he says since it's an act of mourning and not rejoicing, it, it, it fits the law. Now, who knows what the lady was thinking? The lady might have been going, huh? Right? But, but, but Jesus, Jesus was saying this to sort, of, to sort of make it clear. So let me just let me make some surface observations about this story. Number one, this story, just like all of Jesus' story, Jesus, is, Jesus was called a master of Haggadah, which was a teacher with parables and different stories. All of Jesus' stories reveal truths about kingdom people. And so we're going to find ourselves in this story. This story exposes the religious tendency in all of us to criticize and judge people who do things differently than us. It exposes something in all of us and it's in all of us. None of us are, 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 are done with this. That, that judges and criticize someone who does things differently, especially if they worship God differently. Especially if they lead differently. Well, if your leadership doesn't match my concept of leadership, then I'm right and you're wrong. It, it's, it's our tendency to do that. When we engage in this behavior, we tend to disguise it with spirituality. Did you, do you notice in both instances, they pick a very spiritual thing that Jesus majored on, giving to the poor. Does Jesus care about giving to the poor? Yes, a whole, whole lot. And so they use the main tenet of Jesus' ministry as their crux point of their criticism. So they disguise their greed and their critical spirit under the guise of spirituality. We would never do that, would we? Would any, and, and no one wanted to ask the question, would anyone else there have been willing to give a year's wages to Jesus? I mean, they, they went and found something worth a year's wages and in one moment gave an offering to Jesus for it. No one seems to bring that up, that no one else there was willing to do that. No one else there. So, so let me just ask some questions real quick, and then we're going to get into some historical truths about it. Is there any place in my life that I do exactly what the critics did? That I look around and I try to find anything wrong I can find with how someone else is worshiping or leading or something? Is there anywhere in my life where I find myself looking around and trying to be critical? Anywhere. Anywhere. Because if we do that, we're missing a major kingdom principle. A major kingdom principle. When I do that, am I disguising it under a disguise of spirituality? Maybe I'm just trying to help. <laughs> Let me ask it this way. Do I need Jesus to set me free from my addiction to being right? Very good. Someone admits it. Either that or she's thinking about somebody else, which means she's doing exactly what I'm talking about. 
<laughs> now, let me break this down historically to you. There's two different words in both these stories. There's two different words for anointing. The first one is alepho, and the other one is mirizo. Let me write those down. Alepho and mirizo. All right? Alepho and mirizo. All right? This one is the first one. It means a rubbing of the feet. And this one is the second one. It means a pouring on the head. In both instances, Jesus says, they're anointing me for burial. Now, what in the world's going on here? What in the world's going on here? In order to understand this, you have to understand Passover lambs. Because Jesus was the Passover lamb. Okay, let me explain some history behind this. Passover lambs had went through two anointings. First one is this. Passover lambs were chosen six days in advance so that they could be brought in and inspected for five days. So Passover lambs were chosen six days in advance so they could be brought in and inspected for five days. They were anointed on their feet at this time to proclaim that they were inspected and free from blemish on the feet and the ankles. Because the lambs would get scratched up from the rockiness. So, so when they found a lamb, the first place they would check for blemishes is the feet and the ankles. Because, and most of them were disqualified right then. And once they were declared six days beforehand, they said, oh, these feet and ankles are clean. They would take anointing oil and they would rub their feet and their ankles with it to say these can be now inspected for five days. Now, five is very significant. It's the number of divine strength in the midst of human weakness. In Hebrew, five is the number of divine strength in the midst of human weakness. It represents favor, acts of loving kindness that perfects us by Jesus' help in our weakness. The number four speaks of man's weakness. The addition of one to four is the addition, is the addition of Yahweh's strength and power to overcome our weakness. The, for instance, the Torah contains five books. The sum acts of his loving kindness to create the world and establish his ways in man. Abraham's name was originally four letters. It, when it was changed, the letter H was added. It became five letters. David took five smooth stones. The ministry of the elders in the church is a five-fold ministry. Israel departed Egypt in military ranks of five. Five days passed between the triumphal entry of Jesus and Passover day when he was crucified. During that five-day period of loving kindness... And our Heavenly Father was revealed in the preparation of the Son to be the Passover Lamb. No greater love than for something to lay down his life for something else. See, the number five was very significant. So, so, so the Passover lambs were brought in, chosen six days before, in order to be inspected for five. When they were chosen six days before, the only thing that was inspected was their, was their feet and their, their... Well, they have four feet, so the feet and the ankles. So what they would do is they would anoint their feet and ankles with this oil that would say they have been now marked. So in six days before the Passover, Jesus is at someone's house, and they anoint him for burial by doing what? Rubbing pure nard on his feet and ankles. On his feet and ankles. That was the first anointing. That was the first anointing. Now, the second anointing happens two days before Passover. They were anointed a second time on their head to announce that they were free from disease or blemish. 
So the second time, they were anointed on their head. First time on their feet, six days before, there was a period of inspection. And then, and then before the second anointing was on their head. Notice Jesus is the Passover lamb. So what happened to him? He was anointed first on his feet. And then later, he was anointed on his head. The second anointing said, no, they've been inspected again, and they are free from blemish. Free your blemish. So Jesus' head was anointed two days before he was crucified. The costly spike nurdle running down his body. It was a sign that he was well, without sickness or defect, and would maintain this status in the inspections given by the priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes. He was found without blemish, a perfect lamb of God, fit for his scourging and crucifixion, taking the sins of the world upon him in his innocence and redemptive purpose. So, so first anointing was on the feet six days before. Second anointing was on the head two days before. And then they were sacrificed. The Passover lambs were sacrificed on Passover at exactly the ninth hour. Passover happens on this. Aviv 14. That's the month. That's the day. Okay. Aviv 14. At exactly the ninth hour. So at the ninth hour. Now, according to, according, according to the rabbis, the ninth hour was the exact, de- the exact moment that Adam and Eve were created. It says that, think about it, it says that, that they were on the sixth day, they were created on the eve of the Sabbath. The Sabbath would have started at sundown, so they were, it says that they, were, that they were created between the evenings. Well, in Hebrew culture, evening is what we would call afternoon, somewhere between 12 and 6. And so what they believed was, and what was passed down orally, was that Adam and Eve were created at exactly the ninth hour. So every year on Passover, they sacrificed the lambs at the exact moment and the anniversary that Adam and Eve was created. So the first Adam was created on the ninth hour. The second Adam was sacrificed on the ninth hour. There was a lot that went on at this ninth hour. Every day in Israel, they would have an evening prayer. The evening prayer happened at exactly the ninth hour. They would go from three to four, the first 30 minutes in silence, the last 30 minutes in praise and thanksgiving. In the first 30 minutes, they would begin to offer their prayer after the evening sacrifice for our sins was made. This happened at exactly three o'clock. After the sacrifice was made, the priest would go into the altar of incense and offer offer the prayers up as incense to the Father as a sweet-smelling savor. This all happened at the ninth hour. This was all going on on the other side of the mountain at the same time Jesus was going through his. He was killed, the Passover lambs were killed on Aviv 14. The number 14 is also very significant. The rabbis break the Bible down into sections. Those sections are not books like we are used to. They break the Bible down into sections called toldos. A toldoth is a record or a genealogy. It's a toldoth. There were 13 toldos in the Old Testament, 13 sections. What they believed was, was that whoever the 14th toldoth was about, that would be the Messiah. So there was 13 toldos in the Old Testament. How does Matthew start his gospel? 
And this is the record of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, right? He's starting, he uses the word toldoth. He's saying this is the 14th toldoth. This is the one. This is the one. Very interesting. They, they, they actually had a belief that, that was called the doctrine of Ben David, Ben Joseph. It just says that whoever Messiah is has to be the son of David and the son of Joseph all at the same time. How many times in the New Testament do you hear people addressing Jesus? Son of David! Son of David, have mercy on me. Here's how you write David in Hebrew. That's how you write David in Hebrew. Now, every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew letter is a picture. Every Hebrew word is a comic strip. Also, every Hebrew letter is a number. They don't have numbers in Hebrew. Every Hebrew letter is a number. It's like Roman numerals. So every name has a numeric value. Go and learn what this means. There will come an Antichrist, and his number will be 666. That's very common to them. Every Hebrew name has a number. D is 4. Vav is 6. D is 4. So the number of David is 14. 14. So the 14th Toldoth was about the son of David who happened to be the Passover lamb killed on the 14th of Aviv. Matthew makes a point of this. He says, at the end of his genealogy, he says, remember, he's talking to Jewish people. He says, so you see, there are three sets of 14. There are 14 generations between Adam and David, 14 between David and Babylon, 14 between Babylon and Christ. Now, what's the number three in Hebrew culture? The number of complete witness. Two is a beginning witness. Three is a sure witness. So he says, so you see, we have a sure witness of 14. We have three sets of 14. Well, how would he have written that in Hebrew? He would have said, we have a complete witness of David. We have a complete witness of David. 14 times three is 42, which is how you write Joseph. So he says, so you see, the 14th Toldoth is about the Messiah, who is the son of David and the son of Joseph. And one day he'll be the Passover lamb who is going to be killed on the 14th of Aviv. It's almost like these people had help writing all this. (laughs) So the subject of the 14th Toldoth was the son of David and was slaughtered on the Passover lamb as the 14th of Aviv. So here's my question. We're going to be, what you say, well, Shane, what's the drosh here? That's really nice historical insight, and that makes the Bible sort of come alive. But when I walk home tonight, um, what does that mean for me? Well, it means a lot of things. Let me ask you a couple questions. Number one, where do you need God to demonstrate his loving kindness to you tonight? Given the assumption that God has shown you loving kindness, what have you done to respond to it? If we're going to be kingdom people, we have to respond to God's love. The Bible says it this way, that God commended his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize that the whole cross, the whole story of the cross, the whole thing was God saying, I love you first? Do you know how crazy that is? Listen, whoever says, I love you first is taking all the risk. If you're in a dating relationship right now, you know exactly what I mean. 
If, you, if, if you're young enough to remember your dating life, you know what I mean. Who, who, yes. Who, who, whoever said I love you first is taking all the risk. You, may, you know what I'm talking about. Why? I love you. What, what, what are the, whoever says I love you first, what are the possibilities? What if they say, I know. What if, what if they say, that's great. Yeah, right. What if they say, what if they cry and run into the bathroom? Like, there's all kinds of, of options. Um, when, when, I was a, when I was a junior higher, I, I, I wanted to ask this girl. In, in those days, I don't know what you call it now, but today, in those days, we called it going together. And so I wanted to ask this girl to go with me. Her name was Leslie Sherberger. <laughs> you might laugh, but she was a babe. And so, and so I made two critical errors. My first error was I told my friends I was going to ask her. Bad decision. Second critical error was I decided to do it before school, which gives you a huge time limit. So, so as the bell was, was coming up to, to ring, I, my, my guys started giving, you know, razzing me and that sort of thing. And so, so I finally had to take the long walk across the schoolyard. And you're walking across the schoolyard and your heart's going, boom, 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 boom. Your eyes get a little more focused. Everything gets blurry around it. See, my brother asked a girl to go with him once, and she ran into the bathroom. And uh, that didn't go so well. So this was in front of the whole school. And so I asked, her, I asked her to go with me. Now, you understand that in that situation, I was taking all the risk because her response was her decision, but my heart was already out there. That's true. One of the messages of the cross is this, is that love is risky. Love is risky. Oh, she, she, she said yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I ran in the bathroom. I was scared of her. Yeah. Then I realized it was summer and she was likely going to see me with my shirt off and that wasn't going to work out too well. So, so, so when you say, when, when, listen, this is a principle of the cross. Jesus didn't just die on the cross um, so we could go to heaven one day. Jesus died on the cross so that those of us who've been hurt, we can love again. And the reason we can love again is because we can risk again. Look, I'm a counselor by trade. I've had heaps of counseling stuff. And in general, when you're dealing with a basically good-hearted person who's basically mentally healthy, Right? So in a marriage, for instance, if you're dealing with two basically good-hearted people who are mentally healthy, when they come and see you and they say, we don't love, we don't love each other anymore, that's typically not true. What typically is true is that it's not that they don't love anymore. They're just too scared to risk anymore. So you have two people who aren't willing to risk with each other anymore. And as soon as you can't risk, you can't love because love is risky by nature. And so really, part of the cross is setting us free to love again because it sets us free to risk again. Now, my question is this. God has commended his love towards you. He's waiting on your response. Have you responded? And if not, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You say, how do I respond? Well, you show love to others. You tell him you love him back. He says, great, go love my people. Go love my people. Let me ask you this question. Where have we lost the big picture because of criticism and jealousy? 
these people were Jews. They knew that he was the Passover lamb. These were some of them were his disciples. He was explaining this the whole time. They knew he was the Passover lamb. Hold on. They knew all this. Six days before, she's anointing his feet. Two days before, she's anointing his head. And, and, and they lost the big picture. Why? Because of their tendency to be critical and jealous and judgmental. So is there any place in your life that you're losing the big picture that God has in store simply because of criticism, jealousy, and judgmentalness? What has Jesus' sacrifice rescued you from? Listen, it's very important. This is so important. One of the most important things I'll say. If you want to be a kingdom person, you always have to remember what God has delivered you from. You always, if you ever lose sight of how much you've been forgiven, if you ever lose sight of how much grace you've been given, be it by God or other people or other people through God, God through other people, whatever it is, if you ever lose sight of what God has delivered you from, you will miss the kingdom of God. And I don't mean you'll miss heaven. I mean you'll miss his best on earth. You'll miss his best on earth. Let me ask you a question. Where would your life be today had God not touched your life? And if you ever lose sight of that, and we all need to think about that every day, every year, in Deuteronomy 26, it talked about this, every year when they gave their first fruits offering, it says they had to give their first fruits offering, they would lift it high in a basket, place it into the hands of their priest. But when they did that, they had to proclaim in a loud voice, my father is a wandering Aramean. My father's a wandering Aramean. In other words, my father is a homeless refugee slave. In other words, I am wealthy now, but without God, I would still be homeless. They reminded themselves all the time of what God had done with them. Why? Because if you ever lose that, you'll look down on other people. Let me tell you a story that illustrates this well. I'm Harry. I'm Harry. I'll just be very personal with you. If you saw me with my shirt off, you would think my mom had a one-night stand with an orangutan. <laughs> it looks like my mom shot for men in a zoo. I don't know what happened. I, I honestly, I've had to confront her. I was like, Mom, what was my dad? Seriously, before God, what was my dad? Be honest with me. It's a little, I mean, it, I mean it's not like I'm Italian or something, but it's, 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 it's bad. And, and, and I, I have, I, I, you know, I have, a, I have a pretty hairy chest and quite a hair and then what started to happen was I started have you ever guys you'll know what I mean have you ever woke up in the morning and the night before there was nothing and then you look in the mirror and there's like a four inch hair coming off your shoulder like somewhere over here <laughs> you know what I'm talking about you're like that wasn't there last night well this this started happening and I started to get I started to get a patch of hair at the bottom of my back right here and and a and a little patch of hair at the top of a uh, top right here. And so it was, it was awful looking. I mean, it looked like, with my shirt off, it looked like I had an upside-down Christmas tree coming up out of my pants, right? So <laughs> I, I couldn't have that. So, so one, day, one day, I was at the hair cutters, and I was wearing a t-shirt, and, and, the, and the lady cut my hair said, oh, Shane, please. I said, what? She said, you are too good-looking for this, please. You've got hair on the top of your back that's showing out of the top of your t-shirt. And I said, that is not the top of my back. That's the bottom of my neck. 
And she said, no, it's the top of your back. I said, no, it's the bottom of my neck. She said, no, it's the top of your back. Now, if you're hairy, you understand there's a huge difference between the top of your back and the bottom of your neck. (laughs) She said, Shane, please let me take care of that. Please, please let me take care of it. I'll do it for free. I said, well, whatever. So I expected a The next thing I know, this very warm sensation went across my back. And once it's on, there ain't but one way to get it off. And so she goes, rip, rip. But see, now there's this big bare spot, so she's got to do the whole thing. So she does the whole thing, Christmas tree and all, right? She does the whole thing. And for the first time since I was like 16, I felt the feeling of my shirt on my back. It was fantastic. I was going on vacation. So like three days later, I'm laying out by a pool. And this guy, it's like three days later, this guy walks by. And he's got hair on his back. And I went, that's disgusting. You need to take care of that. But see, three days before... I was that guy. Listen, if we ever lose sight of what God's delivered us from. You think you're better than other people. Sometimes you have to remember your deliverance cost you the hair off your back. Sometimes you have to remember, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Listen. When my tendency is to judge and criticize, the answer to that always is a problem within me. So if I step back and go, what about this threatens my value system? See, we like to guise it with spirituality. This is violating the Bible. Almost never. Almost never. Almost always, it's violating the value system you've developed around the Bible. Almost always. And so when we, when we have a tendency to be critical or, 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 I don't know, just jealous or critical, when we have that tendency, the, the cure for that typically is to step back and go, hold on a second, this is threatening something in me. Where have I forgotten what God has done for me? And even if they're making a mistake, then at that point, I let them be free to make the mistake because forgiveness and mercy reigns over justice. Always. All right, let's do, let's do another one. Let's do another one. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. This is so cool. This will take us up to our break. 30 pieces of silver. This is what it says in Matthew 26, verse 14 through, through 16. Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Um, this is the NIV, this one. It says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, what's going on here? You got us. Why not just say a bag of silver? Why not, you know, look, Jewish people don't waste words, okay? They don't waste words. So when they start talking about specifics and they start using numbers, you have to go back and ask yourself, is 30 pieces of silver anywhere in the Torah? 
Is the idea of 30 pieces of silver anywhere in the Torah? And the answer is yes. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, Exodus 21, verse 32, this is what it says. If a bull gores a man or a female slave, the owner must pay 30 pieces of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull must be stoned. If the bull gore, if the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 pieces of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull must be sown. So, 30 pieces of silver was the redemption price put on the head of a slave. 30 pieces of silver was the redemption price put on the head of a slave. So, when the priest and Judas Iscariot get together... And they say, what is his life worth? What do they say? 30 pieces of silver. What are they saying? They're saying his life is worth the same as a slave. So to Judas Iscariot, Jesus was not his Lord. Jesus was his slave. In Judas Iscariot's mind, he treated Jesus like a slave instead of like Lord. Now, do you do that? If we're going to be kingdom people, the right sign has to be over Jesus' head. Is Jesus your Lord or is Jesus your slave? Before you're quick to answer, let me ask you this. Your last 10 conversations with Jesus, were you talking to him like a slave or were you talking to him like a Lord? Did the conversation go like this? Jesus, do this for me. Jesus, do that for me. Jesus, handle this. Jesus, make this happen. Jesus, make that happen. Jesus, fetch this. Jesus, do that. Is that a slave or is that a Lord? That's a slave. So maybe even in our prayer life, we're guilty of exchanging his life for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe we're saying, hang on. I say he's my Lord, but in actuality, I treat him like a slave. See, it, it's very important um, to be kingdom people that the guy that we're following is actually king. He's, he's, he's actually the king. His way actually rules. Listen, whether you're talking about Jesus as a rabbi, Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as a priest, or Jesus as a king, the same rule applies. His way goes. Even if it doesn't match what you think is right. Like, let, me, let me give you some revelation here. This is, so, this is deep revelation. You ready? Here is the whole nutshell of Jesus' way in, in one statement. Ready? Be nice. Christians, be nice. When you're trying to decide what the right thing to do is, be nice first. Be kind. Be generous. Do other people better than yourself. Be nice. The king has requested that you be nice. That you forgive people. That you give people freedom to make mistakes. That you do these things. Is he your slave or is he your lord? See, Pilate entered into this discussion. And this is so cool. I'll close this session out with this. Look at the book of um, John, chapter 19. He'll be able to pull it up on the screen. Um, and, but if you want to flip there, you can. You might want to take notes in your Bible. John, chapter 19, verse 19 through 22. 
says this. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where they were, Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, Now nah, what I've written, I've written. Now, here's my question. To Pilate... Who was the king of the Jews? Caesar. Caesar was the king of the Jews. So for a man to say he was the king of the Jews, when he writes over the cross, here is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Was he being serious or sarcastic? Sarcastic. And you would think that the Jews would have wanted to enter into the sarcasm. Why? Because, yeah, you said you were the king of the Jews, yet look at you on the cross. It was Rome's way of saying, if anyone proclaims himself king other than Caesar, this is their fate. Pilate wasn't even being religious with it. So why are the Jews so upset? Well, here's what would have happened in those days. Let me just show you the four words first. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. That takes four words to say. Here they are. Okay? It says it was written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Yeshua HaNazari Vimelika Hayedim. Now, that's a lot to write in a piece of paper over a cross, right? So what typically would happen is when someone put a message on the cross, they would write it out in the most common language of the day. The most common language of that day would have been Greek because it was the Roman Empire. So he would have written it out in Greek, and then in the other languages, they simply used an acrostic, Okay? So if they used an acrostic on these four words, what would it be? Y, H, V, H. So over the cross, Pilate writes this. Here is Yahweh. Here is Yahweh. Do you see why the Jews got so mad now? Here is yud Hey vav Hey. Here is Jehovah. Here is Jehovah. So, so interesting, the name of God. So interesting. Did I talk about this last night? The name of God and the pictures on it. And, okay, my, my meetings are crossing my head. Every Hebrew letter is a picture. So every Hebrew word is a comic strip. First of all, the letters Yahweh... They don't go together phonetically. You can't say them. So when Moses said, what's your name, God? I want to know your name. See, in Egyptian culture, if you knew your God's name, you could control him. So, so God, God knew that. So, so Moses said, Who's your, what's your name? In other words, Moses is saying, how can I control you? And, and, and Yahweh says, my, my name is yud heh which phonetically doesn't. It'd be like me going, um, my name is shesh ben <laughs> it's like one that is he making what excuse me I just turned Swedish I don't know anyway so anyway so it just it just sort of wait a minute hold on that, that doesn't he could come back at me again no you'd have up hey you'd have you'd you'd have up hey she spell that yeah you'd have up hey so the rabbi said well what is this name of God 
And what they came up with was that if you listen to it, it's not, the, it's not how it goes together. It's how, how you sound it. Yud, hey, vav, hey. They said the name of God was actually breath. Yud, hey, vav, hey. A later writer said the name of God holds life together. Isn't that true? What's the, what's the last thing you do before you die? You take your last breath. So when you quit saying the name of God, you quit living. What's the first thing you do when you're born? You breathe. You have to say the name of God. So in order to sustain your life, you have to continuously say the name of God over and over and over again. Isn't it interesting that if you met at a coffee shop with an atheist tomorrow, the very breath it would take him to say he doesn't believe in God, he would be actually using the name of the one he doesn't believe in to sustain his own life. And yet God is kind enough to let him do it. How nice is God? Oh, also, if you look at the letters, remember every letter is a picture, so every word's a comic strip? The, the picture of Yud is an open hand. The picture of Ha is an open window. It means to reveal something, or it also means grace. The number is five. Remember we talked about that earlier? Um, the Vav is a nail. Or a hook. It depends on how you wrote it. And, and the other ha would be an open window again. Which means to reveal grace. So the name of God is this. An open hand of grace is nailed to reveal grace. An open hand of grace is nailed to reveal grace. So over his cross, Pilate says... Here is the open hand of grace that is nailed to reveal grace. Here is Yahweh. Now, here's my question. What sign do you have over Jesus? Is he the guy that you have your quiet time with every day? Is he the guy that you spend your 30 minutes of quiet prayer with? Is he the guy you go to when you need an answer? Is he the guy that you ask to take care of all these things in your life? Are any of those things necessarily bad? No. But if all of that isn't under something that says, wait a minute, at the end of the day, this is my Lord. I will not trade his life and make him a slave. I want to be a kingdom person. Listen, Jesus is not there to serve you. You are there to be his hands and his feet to the whole world. You are there to be his hands and his feet. May we be people who die to our judgmental and critical attitudes in order to be kingdom people by remembering what God has done for us. Let's take a 15-minute break. We'll come back and continue this thought.